Ten years ago, the Internet was the mystical province of physicists. Today, it is a commonplace encyclopedia for millions of school children. Scientists now are decoding the blueprint of human life. Cures for our most feared illnesses seem close at hand. Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. Taylor, what do we have up for today? So in this episode, we're going to be continuing our series of episodes on historical speeches, rallies, and debates. And this one is featuring Bill Clinton. So it's January 1997. I'm going to set the stage here for you. And it's his second inaugural address. And you're going to notice some common themes that modern day politicians are using, but also some things that you might be surprised to hear from a Democrat and probably would be more likely to hear from a member on the other side of the aisle these days. So Clinton is going to begin with the classic promise of America and is going to show his worldview by how he introduces it. Now, in this first clip, we're going to be hearing a contrast being created between old and young and a democracy that may indeed last forever. Let's take a listen. My fellow citizens, at this last presidential inauguration of the 20th century, let us lift our eyes toward the challenges that await us in the next century. It is our great good fortune that time and chance have put us not only at the edge of a new century and a new millennium, but on the edge of a bright new prospect in human affairs. A moment that will define our course and our character for decades to come. We must keep our old democracy forever young. Guided by the ancient vision of a promised land, let us set our sights upon a land of new promise. The promise of America was born in the 18th century out of the bold conviction that we are all created equal. It was extended and preserved in the 19th century when our nation spread across the continent, saved the Union, and abolished the awful scourge of slavery. Then, in turmoil and triumph, that promise exploded onto the world stage to make this the American century. And what a century it has been. America became the world's mightiest industrial power, saved the world from tyranny in two world wars and a long Cold War. And time and again, 
reached out across the globe to millions who, like us, long for the blessings of liberty. Along the way, Americans produced the great middle class and security and old age, built on rival centers of learning and open public schools to all, split the atom and explored the heavens, invented the computer and the microchip, and deepened the wellspring of justice by making a revolution in civil rights for African Americans and all minorities, and extending the circle of citizenship, opportunity, and dignity to women. All right, and now, before we get into analyzing this speech right here, we want to talk a little bit about how your support really matters. Each month, we have server costs as well as the time spent developing the show. And to safeguard our independence, we never run ads. Our podcast is available for everyone and funded by listeners like yourself. So if you appreciate our efforts, we would appreciate it if you could chip in to keep this show running. Now, please take a minute to keep this show on the air ad-free and growing. You can find the link in the show notes as well as going to our website, subliminallycorrect.com and clicking the support us tab in the top right. Excellent. And thank you all for your support that you give to the show. And let's start to break this down now. So Clinton here starts off by really broadening the scope of why people are there. It's not about him being sworn in again for his second term, but about the challenges, the opportunities, and the legacy of a nation that is passing between centuries. And we hear him going back and forth on this contrast principle, right, between old and young. He says, we must keep our old democracy forever young. At which point I had some, so another song kind of playing in my head there. Uh, but, you know, forever, when he talks about forever, that's a very long time. And as you give those big spans of time, and we've heard in the last episodes Barack Obama doing this, we've heard Trump doing this, his, you know, speech writers doing this. When you give that long time of forever, this tends to relax people and really give a sense of the balance between that which is an eternal truth and that which is impermanent. And another contrast that he uses here in this segment of the speech is he says, we split the atom and explored the heavens. So he's going small and then he's going big. He's going old and he's going young. And again, this is that hypnotic device that we call apposition of opposites, taking people back and forth between one thing or the other. And that has the effect of fractionating their attention, moving them from one state into another state. And then, of course, he goes on to talk to us about this ancient vision of a promised land. Okay, and what is that vision? Well, you know, that's a biblical reference to Canaan, which is the land promised, you know, by God to Abraham and his descendants. But it's also a place where dreams can come true, where the hopes can come true. And so when he's talked about the promised land, then he says a land of new promise and the promise of America. And you know, if you've listened to our past couple of episodes about Barack Obama, you know that this is very similar to Obama's talk about promise. It's this idea that the USA is under God and is being guided by this higher force. This idea that we're combining all of our moral virtues and our shared values. And so 
really what we hear Clinton doing, and this is something that we hear in a lot of State of the Unions and a lot of inaugural speeches and a lot of um, acceptance, you know, speeches or victory speeches that people are giving is that they're broadening out people's attention to be able to give it this very eternal kind of feel, to give it this very, um, you know, you're not focused on the small details of your life that might be painful or challenging. Instead, you're focusing on the promise of America. And then he goes on to tell us about the centuries and how, you know, those have been built out. Yeah, just like Taylor said here, he's broadening out that experience. And, you know, you can you can't help but notice the way that he historicizes the moment here, that this right here is not just him getting inaugurated again. This is a new step in the American story and the promise of America. Now, what we've got here is he goes back to telling the tale about how America emerged as a world power from all of its humble beginnings, how America saved the world from tyranny and two world wars. Uh, and, you know, you know, what we've got here is, you know, him really trying to build up this moment because, you know, a president only gets one, maybe two inaugurations. And you know, his first inauguration was filled with all of these uh, promises and and hopes. Some of them didn't work out so great. And so this is his chance to really reintroduce himself as uh, this new administration, even though it's his second term. And so the way that he does this is by introducing the new American century, this new millennium that we're upon here, and this new presidency that's starting here uh, with this country that is old, but also about to be new. And so, you know, he's able to build that context in there and talk about, you know, how America reaches across the globe to millions who, like us, long for the blessings of liberty. And so telling the tale here of not just America's place in history, but that America's story in historical context is a good story, one that helped create uh, a more fair and just world and deepened that wellspring of justice, he says. Uh, and, and he talks sort of about, or at least alludes to, civil rights and, uh, and human rights right there. And so it's really him here trying to bring that listener's mind, like Taylor said, into a more broad ideal mind space, someplace that's a lot more open to uh, to new ideas and new ways of going forward, as opposed to being so stuck in the minutia of policy. And so he's chunking up to to ideas and aspirations and and values instead of specifics. And we'll see him sort of evolve this speech as it goes further. And in this next clip, we're going to be hearing him really talking about choices, about a free people that must choose. And we're going to be really thinking about these choices that he presents as conscious choices, or are they unconscious choices? Let's take a listen to what he says here. Now, for the third time, a new century is upon us and another time to choose. We began the 19th century with a choice. 
to spread our nation from coast to coast. We began the 20th century with a choice to harness the Industrial Revolution to our values of free enterprise, conservation, and human decency. Those choices made all the difference. At the dawn of the 21st century, a free people must now choose to shape the forces of the information age and the global society, to unleash the limitless potential of all our people, and yes, to form a more perfect union. When last we gathered, our march to this new future seemed less certain than it does today. We vowed then to set a clear course to renew our nation. In these four years, we have been touched by tragedy, exhilarated by challenge, strengthened by achievement. America stands alone as the world's indispensable nation. Once again, our economy is the strongest on Earth. Once again, we are building stronger families, thriving communities, better educational opportunities, a cleaner environment. Problems that once seemed destined to deepen now bend to our efforts. Our streets are safer, and record numbers of our fellow citizens have moved from welfare to work. And once again, we have resolved for our time a great debate over the role of government. Today, we can declare government is not the problem, and government is not the solution. We, the American people, we are the solution. So here we hear a lot of sort of dog whistling or at least encoded language here that Bill Clinton is using to reference things without actually uh, going deep into what they really mean. And really the big thing that speaks to me in this moment is at the end where he talks about the role of government. You know, the government is not the problem. The government is not the solution. We, the American people, we are the solution. And what he references here is, of course, the old campaign slogan of the, you know, the government is the problem. Also, the Republican attacks on Democrats being that they just think government is the solution to everything. And this is really emblematic of Bill Clinton's presidency right here, where he is walking that middle road there and trying here to express that, no, I'm going to take a third path here that's going to be middle of the road and moderate, um, because that's what Bill Clinton really won on here. And that's really the type of administration that he uh, that he ran. You know, he talks about how uh, our streets are safer and record numbers of our fellow citizens have moved from welfare to work. A lot of that right there is criminal justice reform he's referencing and the uh, the work requirements added on to welfare and the welfare reform. And so you know, we can sort of imagine if he gave that speech today, uh, just, you know, in spite of what actually happened. And, you know, it really would not stand... Um, the test of time. But if you look back there, you can sort of see the way that he was championing his policies without really 
talking about the policies themselves, but rather the accomplishments, the sort of end results that he's assuming and then moving on from. And so, you know, he's just able to reference that and then build on it with uh, with more and more um, uh, policy. So, you know, because these things were a success, now we need to do even more things that are going to be an even greater success. You know, the, the idea of whether or not these things actually turned out the way that they were supposed to is uh, is sort of brushed over and something that, you know, it's not a debate. Um, he's able to establish that and move on in this way. And, and that's what really this speech is for. Yeah. And right here in the middle, he talks about this more perfect union, which, of course, you know, this is what we just covered um, with Ob- Obama's speech, you know, a more perfect union. And, you know, Clinton here references it years earlier, which gives you an idea just of how um, deeply embedded this phrase and this idea is, you know, within political rhetoric. And, you know, right as he starts off here, this this talk, he's describing the history of America in the 18th century and the 19th century, the 20th century, which is the American century. And then he connects it then to his last four years. So we hear all the time politicians are doing this. They are creating this regal sense of this is what happened through time. And then here is where I am in this picture. So they put themselves there, you know, within that picture. They connect it up as within a path of time. He described there the values the values of free enterprise. He said, these are our values, okay? Free enterprise, conservation, and human decency. These are our values, he said. But remember, those are just some values. A lot of people might agree on those values, but those are some values, and they certainly, the question is, you know, how highly ranked are they as compared to other values, what takes precedence or what takes prominence when they're in conflict? Well, he doesn't really go into that. He just talks about the big picture of the values. And this beginning where he's talk, starting to talk about the choices. You know, we chose this and we chose that. Those choices made all the difference. It's like a kind of a Robert Frost thing here, right? You know, I took the road last traveled by and that's made all the difference. But what difference is that exactly? Um, You know, it's easy in retrospect to look back and connect the dots looking backward at events that were made and then to frame them as choices that were made. But were these really consciously chosen choices at the time? I mean, it's nice to think about it that way. Like, this is what the American people cho- you know, chose because it was successful. You know, just like Alex was just saying there. Or was it simply what had to be done to survive and to thrive? And so he then converts these unconscious choices into a conscious choice by saying a free people must choose. And then he starts to describe the things that the free people must choose, really going into that um, backbone of all the things that he thinks are going to be important you know, in the in the days and, and weeks to come. Now, he continues from this very broadly scoped, highly chunked up values um, architecture. And now he's going to start to really move into the things that maybe aren't the greatest, the things that 
maybe he would like to see fixed or some of the criticisms. We heard just a tiny bit of it there as he was talking about the government is not this and the government is not that and this very you know, pithy phrase, we the American people, we are the solution, which in the video, they kind of zoomed in on people and some people were just like, wait, what did he say? And then some people like slowly clapped afterward. Like, I guess we're supposed to clap at stuff like that. Um, But it really didn't mean anything, of course. Um, So let's listen now to how he starts to get into some of the things that Um, Well, just imagine if you had heard this for the first time and you didn't know that Bill Clinton was a Democrat, would you assume that he was more on the Democratic ticket or might he have been more of a moderate Republican on that type of ticket? Let's take a listen to this. Our founders understood that well and gave us a democracy strong enough to endure for centuries, flexible enough to face our common challenges and advance our common dreams in each new day. As times change, so government must change. We need a new government for a new century. Humble enough not to try to solve all our problems for us, but strong enough to give us the tools to solve our problems for ourselves. A government that is smaller, lives within its means and does more with less. Yet where it can stand up for our values and interests around the world and where it can give Americans the power to make a real difference in their everyday lives, government should do more, not less. The preeminent mission of our new government is to give all Americans an opportunity Not a guarantee, but a real opportunity to build better lives. Beyond that, my fellow citizens, the future is up to us. Our founders taught us that the preservation of our liberty and our union depends upon responsible citizenship. And we need a new sense of responsibility for a new century. There is work to do, work that government alone cannot do. Teaching children to read, hiring people off welfare rolls, coming out from behind locked doors and shuttered windows to help reclaim our streets from drugs and gangs and crime, taking time out of our own lives to serve others. Each and every one of us, in our own way, must assume personal responsibility, not only for ourselves and our families, but for our neighbors and our nation. Our greatest responsibility is to embrace a new spirit of community for a new century. For any one of us to succeed, we must succeed as one America. The challenge of our past remains the challenge of our future. Will we be one nation, one people with one common destiny, 
or not? Will we all come together or come apart? All right. So here we have Bill Clinton really talking to us about how we need a new government for a new century. And just like Alex was saying earlier, you know, this is his his way of proving that, you know what, okay, the first term, well, maybe not all the promises were met, but in the second term, that's the new government. And he's being reelected, of course, so the government's really not changing that much. Um, and yet, you know, think about what is he saying, but he wants to talk about what is a new government. And then he goes on this big thing about, you know, responsibility and personal responsibility and how we need to take people off the welfare rolls and we need to, you know, read books to the school kids and all of this humble enough not to try to solve all of our problems for us, but strong enough to give us the tools to solve our problems for ourselves. I mean, and you can hear the message of personal responsibility here laced within Clinton's rhetoric. And it's as if he's trying to appeal right now to Republicans or to moderates. So it's an opportunity, not a guarantee to build better lives. What does better mean? You know, we don't know. Okay, that's not defined. He says we need a new sense of responsibility for a new century. Whose responsibility are we talking about here? And really, you can just hear this Clinton kind of tough on crime message coming through here. Um, this, um, you know, really very, you know, we, we need to get rid of the drugs and the gangs and the crime and we need to take responsibility. And this is the attitude of politics and of government, you know, at the time. And again, this is 23 years ago. So it's something that. You know, when we look back, maybe we can have a little bit more perspective on now. Um, He wants a government that does more with less. Well, that's a very fiscally responsible type of message. That's a fiscally conservative type of message. But then he says government should do more, not less in certain situations. So, you know what? He's just kind of flip flopping here on which type of government he really wants. And so it seems like what he wants is to be given broad authority over foreign policy and, quote, affecting Americans' everyday lives, but also to promote this sense of fiscal responsibility, you know, when it serves the agenda that he's, uh, you know, aiming at right there. And we need to think about the context here around that 1996 election that was also really divisive. We've got a government here that really needs to come together, Republicans and Democrats, in some way. And, you know, every time a new president is elected, they think they're going to be the ones that's going to unite Republicans and Democrats and have a unified government that everybody can agree on. But it never quite works out that way. But here is Bill Clinton doing his best here to reach out to the other side. And the way that he does it is, again embracing the idea that government should not be just giving handouts to people, but instead that people need to solve problems for themselves. And to do that, they need to have those opportunities, not guarantees, to solve those problems for themselves. Sort of addressing a Republican criticism that Democrats are too quick to give handouts that are unearned and entitlements whereas Republicans would rather have it be a little bit more, you know, meritocratous. So uh, this is Bill Clinton's 
moment to try and unify the country, try to get those Republicans on his side. And he does a pretty good job here. Like Taylor talked about how if you listen to this today or if any politician that's a Democrat tried to give that speech today, they would be ostracized because these are a lot of things that Republicans would rather say um, or that extremely moderate people who are, you know, not liberals or not Democrats at all might be saying now, now that the Democrats have turned a lot more to the left and, you know, the Republicans have sort of embraced that middle right agenda there. And so it's, it's very interesting to sort of see that this is a moment where maybe the uh, pol- politics behind all of this is about to change, that this is maybe the Bill Clinton administration, the second half here is where we see a turning point for the Democratic Party, where these are the last of the middle of the road Democrats. And maybe Barack Obama there was the transition over to the more liberal wing. Um, And now we have people like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders that are really taking over a lot of the party. So you can sort of see that transition here and little glimpses of the old party here in this speech. And in this next clip, we're going to be hearing Clinton. You know, he talked a little bit here about the things that he doesn't want, things like, you know, crime and the gangs and so on and so forth. But now in this next clip, he's really going to go into it and talk to us a bit about plagues and terror and torture and all sorts of other, you know, nasty things of that nature. And as you're listening to this, I want for you to take a consideration about motivational systems. Now, we talked about this in a previous set of episodes, episode 21 and 22. This was on the midterm victory speeches. And uh, I highly suggest that you're going to go back and listen to those midterm victory speeches because it draws a very sharp contrast between styles of politicians. And one of the things is that some politicians are driven moving toward things. They want to move toward big ideas. They give us, you know, promise and they give us a sense of these are all the wonderful things that you're going to get as you vote for this administration. And other politicians are really driven away from, you know, something. In other words, they're going to be using pain more as a motivator. And here we're going to be hearing Clinton really you know, hammering on that pain. He's going to be going into some very painful phrases here that even though he says it in his political, you know, speaking tone of, you know, now I'm giving a speech and I, you know, it's completely different from his debate tone, of course. Um, You're going to hear that sense of really drumming up that painful feeling, you know, within everyone. So take a listen to this next clip. The divide of race has been America's constant curse. And each new wave of immigrants gives new targets to old prejudices. Prejudice and contempt cloaked in the pretense of religious or political convictions are no different. These forces have nearly destroyed our nation in the past. 
They plague us still. They fuel the fanaticism of terror, and they torment the lives of millions in fractured nations all around the world. These obsessions cripple both those who hate and, of course, those who are hated, robbing both of what they might become. We cannot, we will not, succumb to the dark impulses that lurk in the far regions of the soul everywhere. We shall overcome them. And we shall replace them with the generous spirit of a people who feel at home with one another. Our rich texture of racial, religious, and political diversity will be a godsend in the 21st century. Great rewards will come to those who can live together, learn together, work together, forge new ties that bind together. As this new era approaches, we can already see its broad outlines. Ten years ago, the Internet was the mystical province of physicists. Today, it is a commonplace encyclopedia for millions of schoolchildren. Scientists now are decoding the blueprint of human life. Cures for our most feared illnesses seem close at hand. The world is no longer divided into two hostile camps. Instead, now we are building bonds with nations that once were our adversaries. Growing connections of commerce and culture give us a chance to lift the fortunes and spirits of people the world over. And for the very first time in all of history, more people on this planet live under democracy than dictatorship. Yeah, and here we really have some great persuasive language from Bill Clinton. One of the things that really stands out to me here is his the patter that he uses when he says, great rewards will come to those who can live together, work together, forge new ties that bind together. Now, if you think about that for a little bit, what, what is he actually saying here? People who can live together, people who can work together and, and bind together, this is, doesn't really mean anything. And there are no, like, what, what rewards? And, you know, how, how will those rewards come to them? And it's just a way for him to use this uh, sort of repetitive language here to bring a listener into a more favorable view. If you take it and, you know, you just accept it, you're listening to him say those words, of course, they all sound very nice. And if those things that I just heard three times right there are nice, then the next things are going to be sounding even nicer. And we take a listen to what he says next about the world is no longer divided between two hostile camps. Well... You know, one might think that he's talking about the uh, Soviet Union and uh, and, you know, the Americans, which 
believe it or not, um, he came into right at the end of in his first term. And this is a reference for him going back to that that moment, that time, and then uh, comparing it to today in the fact that the world now has more people who are living under democracy than under uh, authoritarianism. And you almost have a little bit of an allegory there to the idea of two hostile camps. That might be interpreted as well as being you know, an allusion to Republicans versus Democrats here. We've got, you know, a people not only of the entire world that need to live together, work together and forge new ties together, but we've got a group of people here in America. Remember, this is coming, of course, right after his uh, his remarks about race as well, that need to live together, work together and bind together and not be divided into two hostile camps. Because, of course, he's the uniter here. He's the one that's tying not only America's two sides together by winning the election, but then also the entire world here as well. And so, you know, the language that he uses here is really interesting, the way he plays on that in both the historical context, but then the geopolitical context. But then I also hear a lot of hints to the politics here at home as well. Yeah, he really is uh, propping up here diversity, you know, talking a lot about how, you know, that's basically it's a good thing. But again, what are the rewards? As Alex just said, we don't know what they are. And, you know, it's just funny to look back at some of these things that he's saying, how we were able to build bonds with nations that were once our adversaries. Well, you know, it's really funny to look back on that now to see if we actually have accomplished that. And, you know, only a few years later, after he gave the speech, you know, 9-11 happened, for instance, right? And is it really true that we have built bonds, you know, in the in the time intervening? And, you know, some other kind of funny things here of the era of the time, the, the internet uh, was, you know, is now a commonplace encyclopedia for millions of school children. Yeah, it's an encyclopedia, all right. <laughs> um, you know, and then uh, the the cures for our most feared illnesses seem close at hand. <laughs> yeah, they, they sure are. Um, and, you know, listening here to the motivational systems, right? So he starts off this clip by talking about a lot of division, the divide of race. And he uses these words, you know, like, plagues and terror and, you know, torture and tormenting, fracturing, crippling, you know, robbing these, the types of things that he's, he's saying here. And it's just so, so very, uh, you know, negative and dark. And he says this phrase about, you know, we cannot, we will not succumb to the dark impulses that lurk in the far regions of the soul everywhere wait a second, whose soul are we talking about? And so it just kind of gives you this idea about Clinton's worldview here. You know, you get this impression that, you know, Bill Clinton is fighting a battle inside of himself between good and evil all the time. And, you know, is the soul actually everywhere? You know, what does that mean? Um, And it really, you know, as I heard this, it really, you know, sparked off something about how him and Hillary have been 
you know, so able to connect on this ideal basis because what he is talking about here is very much a good versus evil type of thing. And this is represented in, for example, Hillary Clinton's personality style where she's just very ideal based. Okay. Um, very black versus white, good versus evil, you know, type of based and how she does it. Depending on your particular political leaning or orientation, you may agree or disagree with her ideals, but we do hear this kind of sense of right versus wrong, good versus bad. This is a black or a white picture inside someone's mind. It's what might be associated with a judger in, a, in the Myers-Briggs, for example, right? So we hear this coming out in Clinton's speech here, and again, did he write this? You know, probably not, but it is very thematic here um, about just bringing up this sense of evil and this this idea about the dark impulses lurking in the far regions of the soul is very Freudian, by the way. Okay, this is something that Sigmund Freud, when he was talking about the subconscious, had this idea of this deep, dark cauldron, you know, that that was happening and, you know, you had to kind of be afraid of it. And this is kind of what um, Clinton here is referencing is this, you know, very deep, dark place, supposedly within all people. Right. But is it really true that it's within all people or is this just what he's accessing at the time? And then he switches his motivational pattern from being an away from motivational pattern to switching into something that is more focused on moving toward something, moving toward possibility, this rich texture of diversity, he says. And he talks about building bonds, you know, growing connections and having more people living under democracy, you know, rather than dictatorship. And in that way, he kind of sums up this message by ending on that very kind of positive feel good note and creates a strong direction. This is what we have had. Now this is what we're moving toward. And all of this is within that structure of the 18th century, the 19th century, the American century, and now Bill Clinton's second you know, term. He's, he's linked it all back here and has you know put in that direction, that motivational direction about what it is that you're actually moving toward now as you reelect him. And I think that's about all the time we've got for today. Head on over to subliminallycorrect.com. You can also find the link to our Patreon page in the show notes. If you click that, you can donate as much as you feel comfortable with to keep this show on the air every single week, especially during these dark times. It's always great to have a reliable podcast that is teaching you so many very interesting things about how politicians persuade us every single day. You can find some unique content in there. And if you really love the show and want to help us stay on the air, go to iTunes or your podcast app and rate us five stars. It really does help people find this show. And if you have questions, comments, ideas, go to Twitter and tweet at us at SubliminalPod or our Facebook page to send us questions or just things you want to see more of on the show. We'd love to hear from you. We might even bring up some of your stuff on the air. So we will talk to you next week.